You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. How will the use of glucagon and insulin work in a closed-loop system? Joining us to discuss the latest research in the use of glucagon and insulin in a closed-loop system is Associate Professor of Biomedical Engineering at Boston University, Dr. Edward Damiano, and Instructor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Stephen Russell. Doctors Damiano and Russell, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for inviting us. You're welcome. Steve, let's start off with you. Give us a current definition and the status of the closed-loop system. Many of our listeners are primary care physicians, nurse practitioners working out in the trenches, so we want to give them a kind of a good view before we get into some of the specifics. Sure, Steve. Well, the closed-loop system that we're investigating uh, uses several pieces of technology that are already available to people with diabetes. The first is a continuous glucose monitor. The other piece of technology that we use that's already available is insulin pump, But the piece that's been missing uh, for a true closed-loop system is the decision-making piece. The closed-loop system puts a computer in the mix that takes those uh, blood glucose measurements and makes decisions about how much insulin to deliver. But it also has uh, an element that uh, previously has never been used, and that is a way to raise the blood glucose automatically if it it goes too low, and that is uh, glucagon. And I should point out that this whole system is something that uh, is worn on the outside of the body. The continuous glucose monitor is minimally invasive. It sends the signal to a computer, and then both the insulin and the glucagon are delivered through commercially available insulin pumps into uh, subcutaneous uh, infusion sets. Well, Ed, let's talk about uh, the team approach that you're using to develop these very complicated mathematical formulas, and specifically using both insulin and glucagon. The mathematical formulation that we developed uh, was really um, worked out with between myself and my postdoc, Firas Al-Khatib, uh, some years ago after my son developed type 1 diabetes. And uh, this became sort of a priority for one of the research thrusts in my laboratory. We developed a technology which really separates the, the uh, mathematical formulation for making decisions, automated decisions about dosing insulin from the dis- automated decisions about dosing glucagons. So they're really two separate controllers. And just as you have a controller which automatically regulates your cruise control in your car, we've come up with a similar strategy for automatically delivering insulin based on every five-minute continuous glucose data coming in from a CGM. Um, so essentially, our controller is, is working on regulating two things, in essence, um, uh, on the side of insulin, and that is a basal infusion rate, as well as de- develop, delivering uh, larger boluses when blood glucose excursions begin to occur as a result of a meal or for any other reasons. Um, and then, of course, separate from that is a, is a controller, uses a totally different mathematical formulation for determining when glucagon should be dosed. And, of course, that's going to occur when blood sugars are dropping or if they're, in, or if they're uh, below a target, a target range. So the mathematics behind both of these things is actually quite different. One uses something called model predictive control, and the other uses uh, a, 
a proportional integral derivative controller. The key to the success of closed-loop control really is, is uh, having a high data density, and that's what you can get with a CGM. So being able to be – these controllers are vigilant. You know, they're always there running the show, and they never get bored. It's really ideal for a computer when you think about it. it, it the, thing of the, the, the business of managing glucose is really all about paying attention and having lots of data. Let's both of you comment maybe on some of the – the hurdles, regulatory, other physiologic hurdles, using glucagon in a closed-loop system. For one thing, glucagon is not approved for this indication, as you know. It's been approved as a rescue hormone in large doses delivered intramuscularly. We're using glucagon um, in continuous infusion in pumps, in insulin pumps right now, using standard um, insulin pump infusion sets. And glucagon has not been approved for that indication, and in fact, it's not really been developed for this indication. Glucagon itself is not stable in solution uh, for long periods of time, up to uh, you know three or four days, which is what we'd, we'd really need for uh, such an application. Since, as Stephen mentioned, it's being used on, you know, it's being worn outside the body in a pump, uh, and you would change reservoirs every two or three days. So, glucagon would need to be developed. Our new formulations would need to be developed and stabilized. Companies are working on this now. Um, and it would have to go through a regulatory pathway independent of the device itself, which also requires uh, the development of a two-chamber pump because glucagon would be delivered as a separate, in a separate chamber uh, from insulin. And so dual-chamber pumps would be required. And, um, of course, the algorithm itself, an automated delivery system, uh, has never been approved for insulin delivery. And so this would have to be approved as well. And the integrated system as a whole would also need to be approved. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with Dr. Edward Damiano and Dr. Stephen Russell. And we're discussing the use of glucagon and insulin in a closed-loop system. Well, Steve, we were talking about some of the hurdles that it's going to take to come up with a system that automatically gives insulin and glucagon when you need it to prevent high and low blood sugar. What are some of the hurdles that you're working on? As effective as we've shown it is in raising blood glucose in low doses, um, since we're not using it in a rescue application and we're uh, treating with small doses of glucagon as the blood glucose falls towards the hypoglycemic range, but before it reaches it, we can often prevent hypoglycemia uh, with very tiny doses of glucagon. However, this requires that there be glycogen in the liver. Glucagon primarily works by opposing the effects of insulin in the liver and actually turning the liver into a glucose-producing organ. And in order to do that, there have to be glycogen stores in the liver. So one bargain we'll have to make with people who use a bihormonal system is that they do have to eat from time to time. Periods of extended fasting over a number of days would reduce the effectiveness of glucagon. Well, while we got you, Steve, let's talk about some of the pathways for treatment. You know, who are you expecting to use this bihormonal therapy? Initially, people who have maintained uh, tight control and consequently have hypoglycemic unawareness would be a, a prime candidates for the use of a bihormonal system because should they become low overnight or uh, during the day when they're not thinking about their diabetes, uh, they could get into real trouble quickly and this system would uh, have their back, as it were, and prevent that hypoglycemia. As we get more experience, I, I imagine that the uh, target 
population for this kind of therapy would include anyone with type 1 diabetes and perhaps eventually those with type 2 diabetes that are dependent on insulin injections. Let's go to the last question, and we'll, we'll hit up Ed with this one. Um, tell us about the studies you're doing, uh, and give us some uh, reason for hope that this is actually within our lifetime. What we've done uh, up till now is a um, series of experiments in subjects 18 years and older um, who have type 1 diabetes and have a negative C-peptide, uh, to essentially see how well the system works. We initially did uh, experiments in diabetic swine, and that gave us the, the uh, preclinical data we needed to, to move into humans. Um, and we've now done experiments lasting 27 hours in duration in which subjects came in and ate three carbohydrate-rich meals over a period of 27 hours under biohormonal closed-loop control. Um, and we were drawing blood, blood levels of insulin and plasma glucagon throughout the entire period. After those experiments were finished in the fall of 2009, we published those, those results in April of 2010. And um, we are now into our second phase trial, which is 48 hours in duration. Subjects come into the Clinical Research Center at Massachusetts General Hospital, and um, they, they consume six meals over this two-day period. They uh, participate in a period of structured exercise on the, at the end of the first day, a period about 40, 30 to 40 minutes of structured exercise on a stationary bicycle. And they're more able to, more free to move around the CRC than in our first phase trial. Uh, so it's a little bit closer to sort of free living conditions. And we're hoping to um, start a third phase trial uh, in the next uh, 9 to 12 months in which subjects would engage in five full days of closed-loop control. Well, well, Ed, how did they do on those two days? Yeah. So what we've seen so far is that um, we've tested both an insulin-only configuration of our system where the glucagon infusion system is essentially turned off, and we've also looked at the bihormonal system. And we found that under bihormonal closed-loop control, the subjects have remarkably good Average blood sugar is approximately 150 mg per deciliter, between 140 and 150 mg per deciliter, with a continuous glucose monitor driving the control system. And essentially eliminate hypoglycemia, even um, around exercise uh, and through the night in the, with the bihormonal system. So people on such a system, we could anticipate getting A1Cs between 6.5 and 7% with no hypoglycemia. Uh, and they'd be able to exercise with no need for carbohydrate intervention or even consideration of the fact that they're going to exercise. Uh, so that was, that was, those are very encouraging results, I think, when you think about what the national, national average is for A1Cs under open-loop therapy. The insulin-only system is also, I think, a significant improvement over open-loop therapy from what we're seeing so far. However, with that system, we anticipate subjects will need to do the same kinds of, uh, same kinds of things. They'll need to be mindful of the same kinds of things that they are under uh, open-loop therapy. For example, if you're going to exercise, you may need to take some carbohydrates prior to exercising because the controller simply has no other weapon to combat a sudden precipitous drop in blood sugar due to uh, physical activity. And even at nighttime, you'll still have some of the same concerns. When you go to bed at night, you'll have to wonder, am I going to be hypoglycemic? The hypoglycemic, the controller can turn off the insulin infusion rate, but sometimes you need a little bit more than that. Um, and the insulin-only system can only do that. So it can just simply refrain from dosing insulin and hope that's enough to prevent uh, hypoglycemia. So we're encouraged by it, but it is a smaller step than the bihormonal one. I think people will really see that the bihormonal solution is, is ultimately necessary for what we would consider to be a true artificial endocrine pancreas. 
I'd like to thank our guests, Associate Professor of Biomedical Engineering at Boston University in Boston, Massachusetts, Dr. Edward Damiano, and Instructor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Stephen Russell. Doctors Damiano and Russell, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan, who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes, whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.